So Ezekiel chapter three, 23, Ezekiel chapter 23. Uh, before I preach the best sermon that you'll ever hear on Ezekiel chapter 23, I'd, I'd like to... Now, you know, you may laugh, and it's true, but, uh, but I know why Paul laughed, because it's not a boast. It's, you'll never hear a sermon on Ezekiel 23, so this is the best sermon you'll ever hear. It's the worst sermon you'll ever hear. If you're five years old and you live to 105, this is the sermon that you will hear on Ezekiel chapter 23. I looked around and, um, you know, they have sermon archives uh, that go back decades. And one church had over 50 years of sermon archives and nothing on Ezekiel chapter 23. Another, another church I found, they had sermons going back to 1966. And over, since 1966, they preached 64 sermons on Ezekiel. 64 sermons on Ezekiel, and it's a book of 48 chapters, but there was not a single sermon on Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel chapter 23 doesn't just scare people in the pew, it scares preachers too. Why? Well, I think it's because we don't want to confront the wickedness in the world, the wickedness in the church, and the wickedness in our own hearts. And we want to paint with broad brushstroke, glossing over details. But Ezekiel chapter 23 paints in fine detail, very fine detail. And Ezekiel 23, 23 shows us that we can be ruined by what we love. We can be ruined by what we hate. In the afterward, in the forward, sorry, to his magisterial anti-TV book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman contrasts George Orwell's 1984 and Algis Huxley's Brave New World. Here's what he writes. When Orwell, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there'd be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book, Postman Continues, is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. And Ezekiel chapter 23 shows us that both can be true. We can be ruined by what we love, and we can be ruined by what we hate. We have in Ezekiel chapter 23 a story of two sisters, Ohalah and Oholibah, and they correspond to two cities, Samaria and the north, and Jerusalem and Judah. And Oholah and Oholibah sound like the Hebrew word for tent, ohel, but the reason for the naming isn't clear. It could be that the tent is evocative of the fact that, that they were wandering people. It could be the, uh, a reference to a tent of, of worship of the Lord. But anyway, the, the key here to notice is that um, she was mine, verse 5. 
Ohalah played the whore while she was mine. Whereas um, Ezekiel chapter 16 makes the marriage of the Lord to his people, kind of puts that in the forefront. Here in Ezekiel 23, it's in the background. And we see here at the start that before they even become Jerusalem and Samaria, they were unfaithful to the Lord in the land of Egypt. Verse 3, they played the whore in Egypt, even before they became prosperous cities. So what's the complaint against these two sisters, which represent two cities? Well, first, in verses 5 to 10, he makes short work of Samaria. Ohalah desires what is wicked. Then, in a longer passage, verses 11 to 35, we have Oholibah, who detests what is desired. And then finally, the two sisters come together for the Lord's condemnation in verses 36 to 49, where they're destroyed by indifference. So, desire what is wicked detest what is desired and destroyed by indifference. So first, Ohalah, that is Samaria, desires what is wicked. Verse 5, Samaria delighted in Assyrian men who were, verse 6, clothed in purple. They had fancy titles. They were governors and commanders. All of them desirable young men, horsemen, riding on horses. They were skilled. They were impressive. They were athletic. And she pursued them, verse 7, she pursued them and she pursued their idols. She was unfaithful to the Lord. In fact, you could say that she was faithful in her unfaithfulness. She was constant in her inconstancy. It's something that she started in Egypt. Verse 8 returns, it's a recapitulation of the theme of verse 3. She'd begun in the hoarding that she'd begun in Egypt, right? So this is, she's in keeping with what, what she came from. So she desired what was wicked and she was ruined by what she desired. Look at verses nine and 10. The Lord says, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers. She got what she desired, but verse 10, they abused her. They ruined her. She was ruined by what she desired. So sex, honor, money, power. We pursue these things and what we desire becomes the occasion for our own ruin. We have become all too accustomed to hypocrisy in our church leaders there, I saw a headline either yesterday or the day before. Pool boy tells all, which was about a disgraced former president of a Christian university. Or consider a very prominent Christian apologist who, as during his life, was publicly embarrassed for making up his academic credentials. And after his death, all of his um, horrible sexual behavior became exposed. Then there was the missionary. I just learned this uh, 
this week in preparation, or last week in preparation for today, there's a missionary who received over $8 million in COVID relief funds for a ministry that, quote, communicates Christian love and doctrine in service to the poor. They claimed they had 486 employees and a monthly payroll of $2.7 million. Once the PPP loan was obtained, members of the family misused funds by attempting to purchase a $3.7 million luxury home in the Four Seasons private residence community at Walt Disney World Resort. You know, one of the worst things that can happen to us is the satisfaction of our wicked desires. It is better for us to be frustrated and unable to obtain our sinful desires than actually to obtain what we desire. Rosaria Butterfield, in her very good book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, says that as she explored the Christian faith as an unbeliever, a friend of hers who had abandoned Christian ministry, 15 years of Christian ministry, gave her two boxes of books. And after becoming a Christian, Butterfield read her friend's copy of Calvin's Institutes and found cautions and notes to self. Cautions like, be careful here. Don't forget Romans 1. Homosexuality competed with Christian ministry. And in this instance, homosexuality won. So be, be vigilant about what you desire. Be thoughtful about it. Is sin attractive to us sinners? Of course it is. But there are things that we find beautiful that will only destroy us. So be on guard. Purity is its own protection. So do not be like Samaria and desire what is wicked. Our second point is detest what, is, what was desired. We see this in verses 11 to 35 with Ohala's sister, Oholibah. Ohala, we just handled her. She's a, a minor figure in this tale. Samaria to the north is not the issue. They've been uh, crushed by the Assyrians. But it's a holy ba, that is Jerusalem, that really is Ezekiel's focus. Notice, strikingly, in verse 11, that Jerusalem sees Samaria's destruction and instead of repenting, becomes even more corrupt than her sister. Yes, she yearned for the Syrians, just like her sister but she longed for the Babylonians in Chaldea as well. Verse 14 seems to suggest some kind of uh, ancient pornography where the images of the Chaldeans are portrayed in vermilion. It could actually be pornographic images or it could merely and only be the presentation of the glory of Babylon was itself captivating. So the lust was not for sex, but it was for power and honor and glory. But however, whatever the, the content of the desire, 
She pursued them, verse 16, and so they came, verse 17. Now these verses presumably refer to Jerusalem's desire, which are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23, to forge for, to an alliance with Babylon against the Egyptians. But something curious happens. The desire is satisfied, but what was desired becomes revolting. Aholibah turns from the Babylonians in disgust. Verse 18, sorry, uh, verse 17, she turned from them in disgust. And then the Lord himself, verse 18, turns in disgust from them. These verses presumably refer to the next chapter in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 24, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, as his servant, only to have Jehoiakim rebel against him, which provokes Nebuchadnezzar's anger against he besieges Jerusalem and installs Zedekiah as his puppet king. And Zedekiah, as we know, will himself eventually rebel, and Nebuchadnezzar will completely destroy Jerusalem. The object of the desire is the cause of their ruin. The object of their desire is the cause of their ruin. Jerusalem does not repent. Verses 19 to 21, but instead increases her unfaithfulness. And notice, even as she is carousing with Babylon, how she longs for the days of Egypt. She longs for the days of Egypt. And verses 22 to 35 describe in detail how the Lord will cause this wickedness to flourish into their destruction. Verse 35 actually offers a good summary of the Lord's judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back. Notice they're remembering Egypt, but they're forgetting the Lord. You yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. And verses 22 to 27 graphically describe the horrors of war, the disfigurement, the debasement, the destruction, the devouring by fire, the deprivation of clothing and beautiful jewels. Purity is its own protection. The Lord, remember, picked you up out of the ditch and brought you to himself and cared for you and nurtured you. And how will your lovers that you desired but you now detest, how will they treat you? They will disfigure you. They will make you a horror to look at. And there is a purpose here. Verse 27, I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. There is a desire here that you will move away from, that you will be turned away from what is destroying you.
Because what you detest, even though you pursue it, will in fact destroy you. Verse 28, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust. You hate them, they'll hate you back. That's verse 29. You brought this calamity on yourself, verse 30. And then there's this image of drinking the cup of your sister in verses 31 to 34. The cup is deep and large. It's full of horror and desolation. And when Paul read this passage a moment ago, I was struck that you really are going to drain the dregs of this cup of horror and desolation, verse 34, so much so that you're going to gnaw on the shards of the cup. It is going to be completely consumed by you. What you despise will destroy you. And we will detest. We will detest what we have desired. We will detest what we have desired. And it threatens to destroy us. The most memorable line of one of my philosophy professors in graduate school, um, it's funny that it would stick with me. Uh, He's a world authority on Kierkegaard, but this is what I remember from him. A donut tastes like air in the mouth and lead in the belly. (laughs) Air in the mouth, but lead in the belly. There is fleeting pleasure, but also misery. More seriously, we, we desire things and then we despise them. And yet we continue in them and they threaten to destroy us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, sorry, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so what's the solution for the Apostle Paul? He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Only the Lord can redeem us, can rescue us from the things that we love and then despise and yet cling to. What is your pet sin that makes you happy but has brought you only misery? Now is the occasion for you to repent and reject what you have come to detest. John Owen, in his work, The Mortification of Sin, encourages us to wage war, not merely with what we do, but even what we think and what we desire. What do you dwell on? It's interesting in Ezekiel 23 that one of the criticisms of Aholibah is that she longs for Egypt. She longs for the pleasures of Egypt. So wage war against the desires, the wicked desires of your mind. And when you reflect on some pleasure of sin, 
Remind yourself of the misery. Remind yourself of why you hate it, why you detest it, and who will deliver us from the body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is this hard work? Yes, but Jesus is ready and willing to help us in the fight. So cry out to him. So desire what is wicked, detest what is desired, and finally, destroyed by indifference, verses 36 to 49. In a sentence, let's consider how the wicked desires and addiction to what you hate will hurt you, will ruin you. Callous indifference will lead to complete destruction. Notice in this passage, there are several different indifferences. First, they show indifference to their own children. They have blood on their hands, verse 37. And verses 37 and 39 explain why their hands are covered in their own blood. With their idols, verse 37, second sentence, with their idols, they have committed adultery and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had born to me. Children dedicated to the Lord. Think about it. Sons who have been circumcised on the eighth day as belonging to the Lord. They offered in the fire to be burned to the fake god Moloch. 39. When they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. They robbed the Lord of his own children. They slaughtered them and sacrificed to their idols. And they engaged, as verse 39 notes, they, they showed an indifference to their own hypocrisy. On the one hand, they go and they burn their own kids to Molech. And then what do they do? They saunter into the temple to worship the Lord. They, they parade into the Lord's temple as though they're faithful, faithful worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord is clear. This will be punished. They are completely indifferent to their children, to their own hypocrisy. And why, why is that? Because they're indifferent to the Lord. Look at verse 42. Verse 42 says, The sound of a carefree multitude was with her. I think that's such an evocative phrase of how this carefree indifference brings ruin. They kill their own kids and then they come and think that they can worship me. There is indifference all around. And friends, when indifference is all around you, there is no room for repentance. You see, they're done with the Lord and the Lord is done with them. So in verses 43 to 49, we learn that destruction will come and it will end the lewdness and the land and it will serve as a future warning to the church. But has the church taken this warning to heart? Well, what do you think? Consider this. On June 3rd, 2004, an Episcopal priest testified before the United States Senate. It is primarily as a parish priest that I'm here today. 
As a parish priest, it's my privilege to be intimately involved in the lives of a variety of people who struggle every day with what it means to be what it means to be ethical what it means to be ethical, morally responsible people of God in an always complex, frequently confusing, sometimes difficult, and occasionally tragic modern world. It is my job and my joy to try to help, and that's why I'm here today. So far, so good. That job includes, according to the priest, driving, quote, to one of the economically challenged cities to the north of me to pick up a 15-year-old girl and drive her to Boston for an 8 a.m. appointment for an abortion. When it became clear that the father's signature would be required or that the girl would have to fill out complex forms, the priest paid for the abortion. The priest emphasized a willingness to do so again, even if it was or would become illegal to do so. Quote, I have no choice because some years ago I stood before an altar and a bishop and the people of God and vowed to proclaim by word and deed the gospel of Jesus Christ and to fashion my life in accordance with its precepts, to love and serve the people among whom I work, caring alike for young and old, strong and weak, rich and poor. They have blood on their hands, and they blaspheme the Lord Jesus by attributing to him their own wicked actions. They have blood on their hands. And we, as an American church, are the sound of a carefree multitude, indifferent to the Lord. I'm going to drop a bombshell on you guys, and I'm sorry for that, a glitzy megachurch pastor told his congregation in the middle of a sermon. Just fasten your, fasten your seatbelt. I'm in a lot of pain right now because my wife went out. This is the middle of a sermon. My wife went out with me, on me with another man, and this is already, the word's already getting out there. She became physically involved with this guy. She left me for him, and she divorced me. And it's kind of pain beyond pain. It has been in this season. In the, in the sermon, he emphasized his faithfulness to her, and that was five years ago. But just last year, he stepped down from ministry amidst multiple allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse. But don't worry, super fans. He's already back in the ministry. He's, he's, he's already back at it. Now, how could this be? It's because the American church is indifferent to scandal. I don't know about you, but I'm totally nonplussed when yet another major religious figure falls. We have, it's so bad that I actually texted someone that I had been told had left the ministry and I texted him just to check on him to see how he was going. And he, he emphasized in his response to me that he didn't leave the ministry through moral failure. And, and I said, that hadn't even crossed my mind. But it makes sense in the world in which we inhabit that that's the case. Indifference to sin will always destroy us. Indifference to the Lord and his ways gives us no occasion for repentance. So do not be like Ohala or Ohili... Oh, holy bah, and, and just casually enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And then, like, oh, holy bah, 
begin to detest it, but be indifferent to what the Lord is doing. Instead, let's repent. Think upon Jerusalem, the city of David, the holy city. And God says, I will destroy her. Her wickedness is too great. Will God look at Fayetteville, Arkansas and say, no, Fayetteville's too precious. Mm, Jerusalem I will destroy, but never Fayetteville. No, God is not indifferent to your sin, even if you are indifferent to your sin. And he has given us time to repent. And so we must repent. Listen to these words from 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There is still time to cry out to the Lord for his mercy and grace. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would return your patience to us, your people, with repentance. And Lord, we pray for those that I referenced but did not mention by name, that if they're still alive, you would wake them up from themselves and cause them to turn away from wickedness and trust in Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would keep us close to you and that you would burn out sin in us, that you would make us crave what is good and noble and holy and pure and despise what is wicked and vile. And we ask these things in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.